This episode of the MedTalk Podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation Expo. Taking place on the 28th and 29th of September at the NEC in Birmingham, MedTech Innovation Expo is the leading event for medical device design, manufacturer and supply chain solutions. Register now at medtechexpo.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the MedTalk Podcast, discussing the latest issues and news from life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, editor of MedTech Innovation News, and ahead of World Heart Day, I am joined by Professor Andre Ng, Professor of Cardiac Electrophysiology at the University of Leicester, and Alenka Bazulia, VP of Cardiovascular Specialty Solutions, EMEA, at Johnson & Johnson. We discussed the topic of atrial fibrillation, a common heart arrhythmia affecting 11 million people across Europe and its effect on patients and healthcare systems. We also touch upon why it's vital to detect the condition early and the technological advancements that have been developed in recent years, as well as possible future innovations. The first answer will be from Olenka Brazulia. Um, for those that don't know and are probably just dipping into this area because they've uh, encounter people with heart problems in public eye or, or close to them. Can you give us a, an outline as to what atrial fibrillation is? With pleasure, Ian. I think the most important element that I want to highlight is that, as you mentioned, the public awareness of this disease is very low. Not only of the disease itself, but also of the severity of the impact that it can have on patients' lives, as well as on the healthcare systems. It is actually a disease that affects 11 million people across Europe. And unfortunately for us, we're going to be the region which is expected to have the highest growth projected uh, in the number of patients with AF. And that impacts tremendously the quality of life, but it also impacts the cost to treat them and the healthcare systems in general. AF, AFib, or also called atrial fibrillation, is actually the most common cardiac arrhythmia. What does that mean? That means that the heart beats at a too fast or in an uncontrolled way. We have an estimate that about 11 million people across Europe are affected by AFib and almost 900,000 new patients will be diagnosed each and every year. It is very important to pay attention to this because it can have consequences and become a risk factor for many other diseases. The way that AFib happens, maybe if I can just explain um, in a simplistic way, hopefully the, the occurrence is it is usually a result of structural changes to heart. And the causes are not always clear, and they can be very, very complex. Certainly, they're linked to former heart disease, to aging population, family history, high blood pressure, lifestyle choices, obesity, and other chronic conditions. When we think of a heart, it's controlled by electrical impulses and they coordinate the heart's contractions. When we have a person with AF, these impulses actually become irregular. 
and they cause the upper chambers of the heart, called atria, to contract in an uncoordinated, but also very fast heartbeat. Another element that I just want to finish off about uh, atrial fibrillation that is important when we're going to touch about the options of how we can treat it is that it is a progressive disease. That means that with time, it can get worse. It tends to start short, infrequent episodes, sometimes really hard to catch or diagnose, and you will hear those being referred to as paroxysmal AF. But then over time, they will progress to longer and more frequent episodes. Actually, up to one in five people who would be left untreated will progress to a next stage that we call a persistent and longer-lasting atrial fibrillation. Um, thanks for that very full answer. Um, I, I just want to follow up on a couple of points, if I may, um, because I, we're going to come on to the effects of it uh, in, a, in just a moment, but uh, I'd just like to get both of your thoughts really on why do you think that this isn't something that the, the general population isn't as aware of as it should be? Do you think that's because they're probably more aware to other heart conditions that are, you know, you know they get highlighted a lot more, but they're not, they're not necessarily putting two and two together and, they're, they're, and not establishing the link between AF and, you know, a more established heart condition, for example. And as for the amount of patients that are diagnosed, how many do you think have the condition but haven't had a diagnosis yet? Okay, uh, perhaps I can pick up on, on some of these points. Uh, Ian, it's a very good question about um, the, the fact that the awareness uh, issue is there. I think the the um, the medical community uh, and also quite a lot of the patient organisations have <clears throat> put a lot of effort into increasing the awareness because this is really an important uh, medical condition to um, to acknowledge and also to diagnose early because the earlier you diagnose a condition, the earlier that you can uh, design and decide the appropriate treatment for that particular patient. <clears throat> Some of these, I think it's more relevant when we talk about the actual effects of atrial fibrillation and what kind of complications can occur as a result of AF. So, um, because the one thing that I normally say is predictable about AF is that it's unpredictable. Because <clears throat> there's a whole range of different conditions, as Alenka had mentioned, that is associated with AFib but also the presentation of AF in different patients can be very different. Some patients can be totally oblivious to the fact that they have the condition underlying it. And the first thing that they notice when they have atrial fibrillation is they present with a major stroke, which atrial fibrillation is associated with. So the AF is there in the background as a hidden monster waiting to bite you. And the first thing you notice is when you got bitten. But also, the other end of the spectrum, um, the beast is also very much um, uh, at work. That means the heart is so fast and irregular, the patient is aware of atrial fibrillation all the time. But perhaps when it's irregular, the heart beats, it's palpitation, people say, well, just, you know, 
in your heart is skipping a beat. Uh, this is not making you uh, pass out. This is not making you um, having excruciating chest pain. Therefore, you know, forget it. You know, you, you'll be fine. And sometimes it's the sporadic nature of it. It's not there all the time, but maybe intermittent. Maybe make patients saying, okay, I'm, I'm okay now. I was not all right five minutes ago, but I'm okay now. That may have an impact on the fact that they are a little bit more relaxed than maybe a heart attack. Oh, this is a serious condition. Oh, I'm passing out. This is this is a major condition. But atrial fibrillation can, can cause all that. It can give you chest pain. It can make you pass out, but not all the time. So I think it's the heterogeneous and variable and unpredictable nature of the beast is maybe making it a little bit more hidden and less obvious. So that's why as a medical community, we're very keen to highlight the, the all the colors and shapes of this perhaps chameleon. I fully agree. I would only add one point, if I may, in what I've also encountered. Because the prevalence is higher among the um, older population, it does also happen sometimes that people expect us to be normal at their age. And potentially they miss an opportunity to connect it with further risk to stroke, which for sure is a condition everyone will take very seriously. Um, while atrial fibrillation per se not being understood as one of the risk factors for stroke is perhaps, perhaps getting some less attention. Okay. I think you also asked the other topic about um, how many people are undiagnosed. Um, for at least a portion of the patients, we know that they are what we call asymptomatic. So like Professor Ang has mentioned, they might only discover that they have a condition through a different um, checkup, medical checkup that they had, or a different disease presentation. So it's very hard to estimate, I think, how many are undiagnosed. Specifically also at the beginning, I also think when the patients get these episodes very sporadically, it is hard to what I would call catch them. Right? Because to record and really diagnose an AFib, one has to record it on ECG. And should the person not be having access to ECG at that very moment, sometimes it might take up to four years for a patient to get diagnosis. Okay. I mean, I think you actually touched upon something that we're going to come on to later in terms of you know, potential ways that we can... You know, monitor people's heart, heart rates, for example, what kind of technology there is out there. But if I could just uh, stick to its effects for now, because I know, I know we touched on it, you know, fairly broadly so far. But it, it was interesting that the, the symptoms that they can vary from person to person, is that one of the key aspects that makes it quite po probably really hard to diagnose in the first instance? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and certainly, um, the, the main issue with atrial fibrillation is that the heart rhythm is not normal. Uh, it becomes irregular, and as uh, Alenka said, in some patients, it can be quite fast. But it doesn't have to be fast all the time. So if it's not very fast, but irregular, it may just go hidden and unnoticed. But already, because of the heart being irregular, the heart rhythm being irregular, the heart is no longer efficient because the heart is a pump. As you can imagine, you know, even without specialist knowledge, a, a pump should work efficiently if it is regular and pumping in the, in the normal volume each beat. 
But when your heartbeat is irregular, then the pump is no longer efficient. Each beat is different from another beat. So the, the amount of blood that's pumped up with each beat is different. Uh, the gap between the beats are totally erratic. And sometimes if it's fast, the pump will be very inefficient. So the patients can have chest pain, especially if the pump is very fast. They can feel the heart beating erratically or abnormally. They can feel breathless, especially if the pump is no longer efficient. It will be uh, not pumping very well. The, the symptom is mainly breathlessness. And the patient will feel tired, fatigued, generally unwell. They may feel dizzy. In very extreme condition, patients may pass out, although that is unusual. But the main thing is that the overall quality of life is significantly reduced, whatever age group. If atrial fibrillation is prevalent, then they may be sort of uh, uh, apprehensive about the next episode happening. Um, so it's almost like living under a, a dark cloud all the time. And also, in a way, the, um, the, the amount of atrial fibrillation you have may affect the long-term prognosis in addition to other concomitant conditions. So there's quite a lot of uh, these things to consider. It's estimated about a third of patients may have AF without knowing it. They may have asymptomatic atrial fibrillation. So obviously this is a dangerous issue. If they have atrial fibrillation in the background, and if they have other risk factors that may contribute to a stroke, which we now measure clinically as what we call a Chad's fat score, and these are some of the risk factors that we've mentioned earlier about high blood pressure, diabetes, other vascular conditions, age, then the risk of stroke is very high. And this becomes real money. It's no longer a symptom, uh, mild symptom condition. It is a condition that can cause life-changing problems. A stroke could have a, a lot of disability associated with it. So. The patients who have atrial fibrillation then have a stroke and more severe disability as a result of that stroke. So it is very important to be able to diagnose, pick up atrial fibrillation early and to implement treatment that will reduce the incidence of stroke if the patients have high risk. Yeah, I mean, you've uh, touched on quality of life there in quite a bit of detail, but you also alluded to a couple of aspects which, you know, could threaten Know, threaten people's existence in terms of the, you know, you know, people can, uh, atrial fibrillation can lead to fatal heart attack. For example, you mentioned a stroke, but what, what, what other aspects are, what other conditions can people suffer from that can ultimately take their life as a result of undetected AF? Well, AF is it's associated with a five times increase in stroke risk. Um, in general and also it um, doubles the chance of somebody having heart failure heart failure is a general condition where the heart is not pumping well so what you can imagine if the atrial fibrillation is not treated if the heart is very fast and irregular then over, over time this can cause heart failure which may be irreversible and that can cause other issues and certainly it has a, a major impact on on not just quality of life, but also, um, you know, sort of survival and, and, and have an impact on mortality. Okay. Can we just uh, briefly touch upon the impact this is having on healthcare systems, for example, because this is um, 
certainly when anything is very hard to detect, when it, it's, I think it's, it, go, it goes without saying that if you know what you're dealing with in the first place, you, you've got a better chance of fighting it. So what, what's the impact that it does have on health systems? So Ian, atrial fibrillation actually has a very meaningful impact to also the healthcare system from a capacity perspective as well as budgetary perspective. We talked about the need to be diagnosed. We talked about the the fact that up to 2030, we believe there's going to be a high increase, up to 70% of people who will be uh, living with AF. And what would that translate into, based also on some of the statistics Professor Ng has shared, we expect it's going to be adding, unfortunately, 300,000, 340,000 new ischemic strokes, up to 4 million hospitalizations, and 120 million outpatient visits, because, of course, these patients need to be then monitored as well. And when, of course, when we consider that, that's a huge human resource burden on the healthcare system. But in addition to that, that will also translate into financial resource needs. It is estimated that actually up to 2.6% of total annual healthcare expenditure is associated with treatment of AF in European countries. And the cost of treatment and prevention, specifically stroke, which we have heard is one of the uh, most threatening conditions, would be the element that contributes most substantially to the management of the patients with AF. The cost of a stroke patient, the one with AF, would be up to 60% higher than in patients without AF. So again, back to the comment from, from Professor Ang, diagnosing and treating this quickly and effectively would be a tremendous benefit, not just for the patients, but also for the healthcare system from human resource perspective, capacity perspective, as well as, of course, financial outcome. It's interesting you actually picked up on the capacity perspective there, because as has been the case throughout the past 18 months of the pandemic, we've, we've, we've spoken about not only the capacity in terms of beds, but in terms of do we have enough, do we have enough doctors and nurses to, to treat COVID? And now, now, this and um, given the recovery that's going to follow from this, uh, it, it's it's good. Well, it's going to be a it's going to be a long road back, and there's going to be there's going to be a need for a great amount of resources. And having um, having a condition like AF around to treat as well, it, that that can also put on a significant strain. So, can you outline the kind of progress that may or may not have been made? in recent years when it, when it comes to detecting AF? Because has it, has it been quick? Has it been slow? Is the, is the, new, is the new technologies that are currently in development to, to try and help us get a handle on this? Um, we've talked about the, heart, the heartbeat as being one of the first things that uh, we can understand whether we might potentially be experiencing an atrial fibrillation. So the best way to really spot AFib is and a very simple checkup by knowing the pulse. And particularly in the UK, the AF Association has been very instrumental in uh, rolling out the Know Your Pulse campaign. And that has led the population to an increase of awareness on how can they simply check their, their pulse. 
It only takes 30 seconds. All we need is to place the two fingers either on the neck or the wrist and to calculate our heart rate beat per minute. Whatever is within a 60 to 100 beats per minute would be considered a normal rhythm. Um, whatever would be exceeding that would be something that we definitely would recommend for a patient to check already with their doctor. So one is this manual approach of knowing our pulse, but at the same time, we also know that there's been a lot of technological advancements. So like wearables, uh, uh, the Apple Watches, the FibriCheck, Zenicor, and many companies and other technologies that actually help monitor the, the heart rhythm. Um, the other piece is, of course, the awareness. How do we come to the closer to the patient, making them aware of what could be the elements and symptoms to look for? And Ian, as you mentioned, during COVID-19, unfortunately, the patient diagnosis has been one of those areas that have been delayed. Um, what we're also seeing is that there's a great material um, and web page available out there. Uh, it's a website called Get Smart About AFib. And that's a website that allows patients as well as physicians to explain very simply some of the symptoms, to teach them how to check their pulse, to explain the treatment options, share some patient stories, all of that in an attempt to bring awareness even closer. Because simple pulse check can actually save a life. Um, and when someone becomes um, aware of the condition, I mean, I think it'll, it'll probably depend on, uh, A, when at the stage that you may have uh, detected it, uh, and B, other, other lifestyle factors. You know, I mean, I'm happy to be corrected here because you're the experts, I'm not, but I'm... I'm now coming on to the treatment options when it comes to AFib. So what are, what are the treatment options that are commonly available? Okay. Um, well, from the medical side, I, I can comment on, on, uh, on some of these points. I think the, the main issue with AF treatment is that um, this is a very fast-moving field. Although atrial fibrillation has been around for a long time, um, and a lot of studies have been done uh, over uh, the, the, the last two decades, probably, over what's the best way of treating atrial fibrillation once we've diagnosed it. Is um, It's largely crystallized in two thoughts in terms of medical treatment for AF. One is what we call a rhythm approach, and the other one is what we call a rate approach. So the rhythm approach is to acknowledge that normal rhythm is good, AF is bad, and therefore we try our best using all our means, uh, there are a number of treatment available, to try and restore or maintain normal rhythm. So we would not accept AF as a good uh, option. We would try to restore normal rhythm. So if the patient is in AF, we can either give them a treatment called cardioversion, which is electric shock treatment, to get them back to normal rhythm. We can give them drugs to try and uh, maintain this rhythm, or we can use a more interventional approach, which will probably come, come down to in more detail later on, uh, a procedure called catheter ablation, which is what I mentioned about uh, sticking needles in the coins for, is putting catheters in the heart to try and um, treat different areas in the heart that may be causing the AF. 
So this is a rhythm approach. On the other side of the coin is rate control. That means we accept that atrial fibrillation is a difficult beast to uh, address. I mean, maybe in some patients, the more interventional treatment may not be suitable. And therefore, we just control the beast, um, control the heart rate. So instead of allowing it to um, get the heart rate to be very high, we want to use drugs or sometimes a more limited ablation approach with pacemaker to control the rate of the heart so that it doesn't run fast but it still could be irregular. So these are the two large um, uh, streams of treatment, rate versus rhythm. For a long time, we've been trying to find out, find clinical data to give us the answer of which treatment is better. And I think over the years, what we've learned is that different patients are different. There isn't a one size fit all approach. And I think, especially now, we are very mindful of precision medicine. That means it's a patient-specific and patient-oriented approach that we really need to tailor our treatment to the specific patient based on their presentation, based on their comorbidities, the background condition, in order to state which is the best treatment for the patient. So for a long time, we've been doing trials to find out is rhythm control better or rate control better. We couldn't really have it definitive answer. Most trials up to recently have said that they're probably equivalent. But also with that said, I think one important aspect that we need to say in the forefront, even before we consider this rate versus rhythm approach is that, as we've discussed, AF is associated with five times increase in stroke risk. So if the patient has a high risk of stroke and they have AF, they need to be on an anticoagulant. That means they need to be on a blood thinner for life. So that significantly reduces the risk of stroke in these patients. Most trials will say if you're on an anticoagulant, your chances of having a stroke is reduced by 70%. It doesn't wipe it out. It doesn't bring it down to zero, but it brings it down to a level similar to the level when the, if the patient did not have atrial fibrillation. So that is the first thing to, to say. And over the years, we've learned this through really tough lessons that this is important to treat. So once you've treated the stroke risk in atrial fibrillation, then you can take a more measured approach in considering rate versus rhythm. And I've been very fortunate in being involved in a, in a landmark trial, which has been published uh, recently uh, towards the end of last year, called the East AFNet trial, which is a um, multi-center pan-European trial. Uh, we at Leicester were the national coordinating center for the trial. And for the first time, we've demonstrated in thousands of patients enrolled in the trial that if the patients have early AF, that means atrial fibrillation diagnosed within a year, and they have concomitant medical conditions, then a rhythm control approach is much better than a rate uh, control uh, uh, strategy, which is largely what the, the standard guideline currently would suggest. So an early rhythm control strategy reduces the event rate by 20%. So this is really a landmark trial and we were really quite 
as a community quite pleased that we for the first time we've got the data to give us this definitive answer that once we treated the stroke risk of patients if we manage to identify these patients early within a year then we need to be more proactive in treating the rhythm we will need to use cardioversion, we need to use drugs, we need to use ablation to try and restore and maintain normal rhythm. So this is a relatively new and very exciting um, strategy that we, we now have the scientific robust data to support. Um, so I think this is very important. And the guidelines have also highlighted to us that this is not the be all and end all. Also, we need to really engage the patient who ultimately is in the center of our treatment and need to let the patient know that in the background of all this, they need to also address lifestyle issues. Alenka mentioned earlier about obesity being a, 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 a contributing factor to atrial fibrillation and also these substrate issues. That means other concomitant conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes. If they are not controlled adequately, they will continue to be the driving mechanism behind atrial fibrillation. So we need to let the patient know it's not just treating the rhythm and, and rate, not just treating the stroke risk, but they need to look after the whole lifestyle. And that is, uh, I think, a very exciting and new paradigm in the treatment. Getting the patient involved, focusing on the patients, focusing on the comorbidities, and having this really early approach in not just diagnosis, but early rhythm strategy. I think you've alluded to one thing there that everyone hopes is the benefit of the past 18 months or so is that people are now a lot more aware of their own health and are a lot more aware of trying to put in uh, proactive measures to manage their health rather than reactive. I think this actually leads nicely on to the role of technology and it's a simple question really. Has, has technology made, you know, made detecting and treating this condition easier in any way? Ian, I'm a firm believer it has. At the same time, I'm also a firm believer that there's always more that can be done. I think the most important element that Professor Ang alluded to is really for the treatment choices to center around the patient's specific conditions. Every patient is different. And every patient would accept treatment options uh, differently, um, also for their preferred lifestyle, the changes that they're willing to make. But the role that we in medical devices hope to play is really to partner with electrophysiologists across the world and together through scientific and meaningful researches, identify what advances can we make in diagnosing as well as treating um, the um, atrial fibrillation. So when we think of Biosense Webster, we're very proud that we have a plethora of solutions that allow treatment of patients from paroxysmal, so early onset, as well as persistent AF. And our idea or goal that we strive to is really about looking how can we make complex, simple, for our customers? How can we provide innovative products that would allow them to do a few things? Number one is the essence of our portfolio, which is the navigation system. 
So we're really proud of our CARTO 3 system, which is a 3D mapping system. What does that mean? That means that through that base, one is able to map the heart from within. The second one, very simplistically, is, of course, diagnostic catheters. And these catheters, they have to do a few things. They have to be able to visualize and map the heart in a high resolution. And they have to be very easy to maneuver to the heart to reach places. Professor Ung mentioned about, uh, uh, you know, pricking the catheters through the veins of the patients. So they have to come to the right place in a very um, easy, maneuverable way. Then, of course, once the area that is responsible for that wrong electric impulse we talked about at the beginning is identified, we need a therapeutic catheter. So a catheter that will allow, through its technology, to create a very precise and optimized lesion on uh, the specific spot within the heart. And, of course, access products that help us get there. So for us... What I like to say, the idea of technology is to enable visualization and to enable identifying the right place for an electrophysiologist to perform an ablation, which needs to be done actually on a live beating heart. And that's where we pride of. Um, there's been mentioned some of the benefits that technology has made. Um, I'd like to maybe just draw one more attention to a recent research called Study Attest, where we have seen that patients that were treated with RF ablation were actually 10 times less likely to develop persistent AF, i.e. 10 times less likely to progress their disease. And that is a very, very important element. The other lasting piece that I would want to um, underline that technology can bring is actually a result of our study called Vistax. And what does that mean? That Vistax demonstrates that 90% of patients are free from arrhythmia recurrence, or what we would call repeat ablation, at 12 months. And that is important because not only is it important to treat a patient in an acute situation, but to treat the patient hopefully in a reproducible and long-term sustainable way. So these are just some of the latest advancements that our technology has, has hopefully brought to the patients uh, with AF. What, what Alenka is uh, highlighting is very important and very exciting. And, and I, I can't really contain my, my excitement about this. I'm, I'm probably a bit biased because I'm an electrophysiologist. I've been in the field for, for a while. Um, I, I'm, I'm not young, but I'm not that old. Um, what I do every day, as a matter of fact, was not even taught in the medical school when I was a student. So um, I, I, this, the field has advanced so much over the last, I would dare say, about the last two decades or, or 25 years. It is unbelievable. And it is all a, a result of the partnership between the clinical community and the technical platform, the, the companies like you know, the Biosense Webster is, is an example, a prime example of, of really getting into that clinical problem and developing tools. Well, some of us will call it toys, but in, we like toys, but they are really tools that are effective in treating uh, the condition. And I started doing ablation in the early 90s. Um, that's when ablation really took off. Uh, and this is about, you know, sticking catheters 
in from the patient's groin into the heart and then finding areas that was causing the heart rhythm problem and burning it away uh, by a procedure called ablation. So it is heat. We are cooking tissue. But by doing that, it is almost like a medical equivalent of a knife. You're, you're really chopping or snipping a mold out from within the heart that's been causing the problem. And the patient is cured. This is a cure. This is not about, you know, take some tablets and you feel better. It's not a treatment. It is a cure. So that was really the excitement in, in the early 90s when ablation came around. And we can provide a cure for many, many different heart rhythm conditions. Uh, some, some, some things like Wu Parkinson White syndrome, some of the things that we call SVT that a lot of patients have a lot of trouble with. But basically, we, you have the, the, the procedure with ablation, you're cured. You don't have it anymore, ever in your life. So that was really exciting. Atrial fibrillation, I must say, as a, as a condition, came a little bit late in the party. I, I can still remember a lot of the, the, the discussions. We, we, we always regarded it as a Cinderella of, of, a, of a heart rhythm condition because AF is such a, a complex beast that we didn't really know how to ablate it because on the ECG, it's totally irregular. It's not from one spot. It seems to be coming from different areas of the heart. It, surely it can't be burning the whole heart down. That, that's not going to be a, a beneficial thing. So it was really quite a, a landmark finding when um, a dear colleague and senior uh, electrophysiologist Michel Hesiger from Bordeaux in, in France discovered and published the data that the pulmonary veins, these are uh, blood vessels that connect the blood, uh, the, the, the heart and the lungs, the pulmonary veins are the seat of the problem for atrial fibrillation. How I describe to patients, they, there are four of them, there are four pulmonary veins that plug blood back into the left atrium. Uh, they're a bit like spark plugs in a starter motor. So when they fire, they start the starter motor that starts the engine. What you see is a totally erratic, chaotic engine, but they were actually started by these sparks from these four places at the back of the left atrium uh, and pulmonary vein. So then the clinical data showed that when we put the ablation catheter at the pulmonary veins and burn around these veins, we can actually silence these sparks. So when these sparks cannot fire, they don't trigger the atrial fibrillation. Well, we don't quite call it a cure because there's a lot of things that contribute to atrial fibrillation. We've talked about obesity, hyperpressure, diabetes, and also and so on, and aging itself. But surely it is a very good procedure to control the condition. So I may be going a little bit overboard, but I just cannot, you know, express more, you know, my, my excitement about the development of the field over the last two decades. And this is really uh, humbling and puts us in a very privileged position as a medical community that we are able to do something, deliver a very good treatment that helps improve the quality and hopefully the outcome of patients. And, and this is now being borne out by a lot of the studies that uh, you know, Alenka has, has, has uh, highlighted, the test, the restacks. You know, the earlier that we treat this, the better. Because if we pick it up early, the patient is at an early uh, journey, a part of the journey, then we do not need to um, really be too extensive in our ablation. So that is 
quite a lot of uh, advancement over um, the, the, the last two decades. And these are things that the younger generation, maybe the, 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 the more newer, younger, may, may not appreciate because they, this is a matter of fact, you know, they, they're doing, we're all doing it every day, but it has really come a long way uh, from having no treatment options to now a very established evidence-based evidence treatment approach. There is absolutely nothing wrong with your enthusiasm. Uh, absolutely nothing at all. It's always always good to hear such someone so passionate about their work. But I think you actually led us on nicely to the next uh, next question because you talked about how much it's uh, it's it's come on ever since ever since the nineties. But now we can talk about what possible developments are in the pipeline to make treatment of such conditions easier. I mean, has there been any other advancements that can allow different approaches to treatment or? Do you envisage any other uh, um, advancements coming soon? I can start with um, some of our upcoming products that we're excited to have in the pipeline. And I'd love to hear also Professor Ng's experience, as I know he's uh, had his hands already on uh, on some of them. So uh, we've talked about one thing, it's, which is about how do we make sure that we can treat patients. And with current diagno uh, devices, we've already talked about achieving a very high level of treatment, cure, or help that we can bring. The next level of innovation then becomes what else are the unmet needs that we can hopefully help to address. And you're going to see many of them talk about in the area of making the devices even more efficient in terms of uh, helping to simplify or accelerate the procedure, as well as consider whether we can make them potentially even safer. So I just want to quickly touch on three um, three exciting upcoming um, innovations. One of them is called a QDOT micro RF ablation catheter. It's a device that we already have a CMARC for, and it's a really next generation catheter. The idea behind it is to use a, what we call high power, short duration technology that basically allows to perform a procedure uh, or an ablation um, in actually four seconds at a 90 watts um, in a controlled, temperature control setup, of course. But that, you can imagine, Ian, is going to improve efficiency dramatically. We talked about capacity and the need to be able to treat more patients. In addition, when your procedure is faster, the patient would require less anesthesia, another bottleneck potentially in the healthcare system, but also better and faster recovery, as well as less radiation. So this time saving can enable also more procedures in a day, which would allow us to cope with the unfortunate future predicted growing uh, incidence. The second innovation that I wanted to quickly mention is a Heliostar balloon ablation catheter. This is a first of a kind ever radio frequency balloon ablation catheter. And again, it aims to really target a more efficient ablation procedure, focusing on lowering procedure times and reduced radiation exposure. We know that radiation can also be linked to some uh, complications. So 
doing anything for a patient as well as electrophysiologist to reduce the um, impact of fluoroscopy and radiation, we believe is going to be improving and facilitating the patient uh, treatment and access. Now, last but not least, comes the third uh, product that we're really, really excited about, and we announced it on the 1st of October of last year, 2020. We announced the first inpatient enrolled for a treatment with what we call INSPIRE clinical study involving a varipulse catheter and pulse generator. This uses an entirely different technology of treating the atrial fibrillation, so a true innovation. It utilizes a controlled electrical field versus current technologies such as radiofrequency, cryoablations, and others. What is important about this technique is that, of course, we're trying to determine the safety and efficacy. This is where our current study program is in. But we also believe it could help prevent inadvertent ablation to the nearby sensitive structures like esophagus, pulmonary vein, and phrenic nerve. And that, of course, impacts and improves, again, the patient safety. So early days, but very excited in partnering together with our customers to see how we can bring new technology to address even other uh, remaining unmet needs. Yeah, I, I'm privileged to, to have involvement, some hands-on experience with one of the technologies that uh, Alenka just mentioned, which is the Q-dot micro catheter that allows the high power short duration ablation. So it, just in brief, so that we, we can provide a bit of context in the discussion, the standard ablation for AF now largely uh, is, it, 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 it takes two, two main forms. One is a kind of balloon approach, uh, which is what we call uh, single shot technique. Um, so a balloon is, is put into the heart and then uh, you try to you know, ablate at the pulmonary vein, the mouth of the pulmonary veins. Um, the alternative approach is this conventional approach, which is what we call point by point. That means using a single tip catheter to burn around the mouth of the pulmonary veins, uh, veins being blood vessel structures. So um, the issue is that normally there's only one size of balloon for a procedure. So one size, again, it's coming back to our whole chestnut, one, one size doesn't quite fit all. So the one size of balloon may be fine for one patient or maybe one of the four veins for this patient, maybe the other veins are either too big or too small. So you're a bit stuck there with one balloon size and four veins and different sizes of patients. So my personal preferred approach would be a point by point approach because if the patient's veins are small, I can draw a smaller circle around the vein. If the veins is bigger, I can draw a bigger circle around the vein. So um, that is obviously technically more challenging because a balloon is relatively easy to, to deploy. It doesn't need a hell of a lot, a lot of training, it still needs training, but not, not as much dexterity requirement as you, if you can imagine drawing a circle around a vein as opposed to shoving a balloon at the mouth of the vein. So 
the RF approach with point-by-point -point ablation obviously would require some more training, would require more precision, but it gives you more flexibility. And the issue is that in order to deliver a, a burn at a spot effectively, using conventional methods, you need to stay there for about 30 to 40 seconds per burn. So you can imagine the patient is breathing, the heart's beating. I normally allude this to in describing to patients, it's almost like I'm trying to clean the mouth of a chimney with a long pole during an earthquake. So you can imagine, you know, the heart's beating, the patient's breathing. So I'm trying to clean the mouth of a chimney from the bottom of the stairs, you know, with a long pole, but during an earthquake. So clearly, any advancement in technology that allows us to do an effective burn in a fraction of the time is very welcome. So the Q-dot microcatheter is certainly a welcome uh, advancement in that direction. So we are fortunate enough at Glenfield Hospital in Leicester to have started using and have access to the Q-dot micro uh, about 18 months or so ago uh, now. And we've also started our first high-power short duration about August uh, last year. So this is just, just over a year now we've had experience with, with this platform. And we've got a very good experience with it. I mean, very, very satisfactory outcome from it. Uh, now with uh, one year sort of patient follow-up data, the, 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 uh, basically the tool does what it says on the tin. Uh, and it's very effective, it's very safe. And because it is delivering the 90 watts of power at four seconds each burn, not 40 seconds, it slashes our, our procedure time down, down significantly. So as opposed to a, an average procedure time of two to three hours, conventionally, our average procedure is now just over an hour. And also the total burn time required if you were doing conventional 40 second burns each burn will require about 40 minutes of total burn time around the four veins. But now with Q.micro and QMO Plus, it's down to single digit minutes. So most of our procedures are completed with only six to eight minutes of ablation time. So the ablation time is the actual time that we deliver the burn. And that's the time when the patient might feel the ablation. So it's significantly shortened from 40 odd minutes to down, down to single digit minutes. So the amount of sedation, the drugs that we give to help patients relax, and also analgesics, the painkillers, is significantly reduced. So in our last look, you know, we, we only use a fraction of the drugs that we used to use uh, during the procedure. It's significantly reduced by, by 60 to 70% and down to about 20 to 30% of what we, we normally use previously in conventional ablation. So this is certainly a very welcome advancement in the right direction. So we are very pleased to be the first UK centre to have access to this and uh, we fed back to, to, to Biosense and J&J &J and I think certainly the, the, it closes the loop to the R&D team that they've really done a marvellous job in delivering this product. And we look forward to uh, having access uh, in the UK and at Leicester of these other new technologies that Alenka has mentioned. Certainly. I think some of them can be potential real game changers. Um, and as I said previously, I'm really excited about 
this field and the amount and level of advancement and technological development that we've seen uh, within a really short space of time. So all this is going to inevitably lead to better patient outcome. So I think this is really good news, great news for patients with AFib. Okay. Um... Uh, just uh, one final bit to finish on, away from all the uh, the excitement about uh, new technologies and uh, or, or playing with uh, new toys, in your case, Professor. Uh, it was just about general advancements in technology helping to raise uh, awareness of AFib. I mean, what more needs to be done in terms of the awareness of the condition and also awareness of treatment options? I'll start very briefly. Um, I think the most important element, and we've touched that at the very beginning, is really about how do we make sure that everyone who potentially has this condition becomes not only aware, but also diagnosed. Because the sooner we diagnose the patient, the sooner we'll be able to help treat and prevent future disease uh, development. And knowing that one in four people over the age of 40 are very likely to develop AF during their lifetime, we'll see that current access to treatment, current level of awareness is not sufficient to get us there. Now, we in Biosense Webster, we're going to continue partnering with um, electrophysiologists, but also with patient associations and other stakeholders, as well as ourselves help to provide materials such as Get Smart About AFib website that will create and induce, hopefully, more information for patients to feel comfortable to come forward and to talk to also their family and friends about the simple importance of testing and checking uh, their pulse, because again, that can help save a life. Yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree. And I think the other thing is about awareness of the treatment options, because if you look at the numbers, um, the estimate is that almost half of the patients with atrial fibrillation are not well managed by drugs alone. And therefore, if they are not managed by drugs alone, that means they're still symptomatic. They would need to have the interventional treatment like ablation. And the other estimate is only a fraction, a small, tiny little fraction, about four, three or 4% of patients who would benefit from atrial fibrillation are actually getting the um, ablation. So three to 4% of patients who need an ablation are actually getting an ablation procedure. So that may be because of the referral path being too convoluted, maybe because the patients don't know, the, the, the family physicians, the general practitioners don't know, or it could be because of the lack of resources um, overall in secondary and tertiary care. So that is really being, being brought to the front with the COVID pandemic, because obviously with the lockdown, we've really not been doing many procedures for almost 18 months during the last two years. So you can imagine patients don't stop getting sick and patients who are already sick get sicker. So the early AF has now become more advanced AF. So when we are doing the ablation, 
procedures now after the lockdown, we find that the patient's conditions are more advanced. So the amount of ablation that we need to do is more complex. And, and obviously with that, we've, we've built up a, a tsunami, potential tsunami of a big waiting list waiting to be cracked. So this has serious implications for resource provision. So for the healthcare providers, the stakeholders, we do need a major investment, uh, not only in the tools and toys, but in personnel, in staff, in nurses, in cath lab uh, colleagues, in radiographers, in technology colleagues, physiologists, and the physicians who are going to deliver the treatment. We joke about it. We, we, we need to clone ourselves, you know, elect physiologists to, to be able to, to, to manage our current work, workload, which in reality is only a tiny little tip of the iceberg of the patients who actually need and merit and would benefit from this potential life-saving treatment. So this awareness piece needs to go through and through to the general public. So this podcast, I think, serves a very noble purpose in spreading the news and the message to the general public, to patients who have atrial fibrillation, to the patients who don't yet have atrial fibrillation, but are likely to have developed atrial fibrillation to the general physiologist, the general uh, physician who are treating patients with AF, to family physicians, and also to the people with the money who would need to put more money into the community to make the whole population healthier and reduce the burden of complications and outcomes from this serious condition. Well, thank you for your very full answers for you know, the best part of an hour. You've uh, gone into a lot, a lot of detail there, and uh, and uh, thank you for calling this uh, podcast noble. I think it's the first time it's ever been called that, uh, Professor. But uh, um, I like that, Professor. Ernie. Thank you very, very much for your time. Uh, uh, Should we see you next week?